If it's Monday, Washington's wartime warning to Beijing. As U.S. officials tell NBC News, China is considering sending artillery and ammunition to Russia. China fires back, accusing the U.S. of spreading disinformation. Plus, former Vice President Mike Pence speaks to NBC News, rebuking fellow Republicans, saying there is no room in the party for Putin apologists as he gears up for a potential 2024 showdown with Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. And authorities are set to update the public any minute now in East Palestine, Ohio, as contaminated soil and water is now being shipped to other locations, prompting new health and safety concerns. Welcome to Meet the Press Now. I'm Kristen Welker. We begin today with growing tensions between the U.S. and China. Three U.S. officials tell NBC News new intelligence suggests China is considering providing artillery and ammunition to Russia, which would mark a significant development in the war as the fighting in Ukraine enters its second year. These U.S. officials did not say what specific evidence they had to support the intelligence. But CIA Director Bill Burns telling CBS News over the weekend the U.S. was confident Chinese leadership was considering the move. He says no final decision has been made by China and there is no evidence of actual shipments of lethal aid to Russia at this time. President Biden's national security advisor Jake Sullivan told Chuck yesterday any shipment of lethal aid to Russia would only alienate China on the world stage. I don't think it is in China's interest to do this. I think it would alienate them from a number of countries in the world, including our European allies, and it would put them four square into the center of responsibility for the kinds of war crimes and bombardments of civilians and atrocities that the Russians are committing in Ukraine. Their weapons would, in effect, be used for the slaughter uh, of people in Ukraine. So I think it would be ill-advised for China to move forward. But of course, that's a decision Beijing is going to have to make for itself. China is responding by accusing the U.S. of spreading, quote, disinformation and blaming it for prolonging the war by providing Ukraine with weapons. The U.S., of course, has adamantly defended its aid to Ukraine in response to Putin's invasion and alleged war crimes. Meanwhile, Beijing is trying to position itself as a neutral mediator in the war in Ukraine. Last week, unveiling a so-called peace plan that calls for a ceasefire between Russia and Ukraine and the end of sanctions on Russia. President Zelensky says he wants to meet with the Chinese president. The U.S. and the West, however, have dismissed the plan as too favorable towards Moscow. President Biden telling ABC News that he has not seen anything in the plan that would be beneficial for anyone other than Russia. And National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan had this to say about it yesterday. China put forward this plan without having had a single conversation since the war began between President Xi and President Zelensky. Mm -hmm. The Chinese have talked to the Russians a lot, but at the most senior levels, they have not talked to the Ukrainians. And it's very difficult to advance any kind of peace initiative uh, when there's that kind of one-sided diplomacy going on. Joining me now on set is my colleague at the White House, White House correspondent Monica Alba. Courtney Cuby is at the Pentagon. Aaron McLaughlin is in Kyiv, and Garrett Haake is at his post on Capitol Hill. Monica, I have to start with you and this new reporting that we got over the weekend that this aid that China is considering includes ammunition and artillery potentially to Russia. Jake Sullivan says they haven't seen any evidence that China has taken that step yet. But what are you hearing? What are your sources telling you about this? Yeah, that is the assessment of the U.S. government at this time, Kristen, that this is still a high stakes hypothetical that China has not made the decision to transfer weapons to Russia. But what are we really talking about here when we mention artillery, ammunition? 
operation potentially. These would be weapons that could be used on the battlefield that would increase the bloodshed in Ukraine. And so the U.S. is being very clear in its warning sending to China, if you do decide to do this, there will be severe consequences. And that is why you've seen everybody from the Secretary of State to the U.N. ambassador to even the president saying, again, we haven't assessed that this is happening, but should China take this additional step, there will be severe ramifications. And we're talking about things here like potential sanctions and like other things that we haven't seen yet when it comes to China in this larger context and Russia's war invading Ukraine. But it's clear that the U.S. is being out front with what it knows from its limited intelligence and sending that sign, again, trying as best as it can to deter China from doing this. And I think you make the important point, Monica, which is that this is really a chorus of voices that we are hearing saying this. In fact, um, UN Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield told Andrea Mitchell last week that China sending lethal aid to Russia would be a, quote, game changer. I mean, talk about this level of escalation. To your point, we could see sanctions. This would be China putting its thumb on the scale of this war in a way that we just have not seen yet. It would be incredibly significant. And you're seeing some overtures, certainly from President Putin, who had China's top diplomat visiting and having these very high-level conversations there. So you're seeing some signs on the world stage of where that relationship could potentially be going. Mm. But at the same time, the U.S. has been very clear. They sense here that Russia and China are trying to have it two ways, that publicly China is trying to put forth this 12-point, what they call a peace proposal, while privately having these conversations about supplying them with these weapons. Those two things, the U.S. says, do not square. Yeah, and that is why there's just so much skepticism about that peace proposal, Monica. Courtney, let me turn to you. Let's talk about the military aid that has been sent and that hasn't been sent. The U.S. has escalated the amount of military aid that it's sent recently, announcing that it's going to be sending those Abrams tanks along with European allies. But President Zelensky continues to put the focus on the F-16 fighter jets. Jake Sullivan over the weekend told Chuck when he was pressed repeatedly about this that, look, there are no plans to send F-16 fighter jets at this point in time, what are your sources telling you? Could that change? What would change the calculation? So I would point back to the decision on those Abrams tanks, Kristen. Remember, there were people who were saying there was no decision to do that 72 hours before the announcement was made that the U.S. was going to send Abrams tanks. These decisions can change very quickly. I will say there is a growing chorus of people, particularly on the Hill and in Congress, excuse me, who have who are calling for the F-16s to go to Ukraine. But at this point, according to administration officials who we're speaking with, the decision hasn't been made. What the, the military is really focused on right now are what I call the four A's. So one is ammunition. Ukraine needs a ton of ammo. They are going to keep needing ammo as long as this conflict is going on. They are running through thousands of rounds a day. Second is artillery. And that is not just the artillery launchers, but the ammunition, the shells, exactly what it is that the U.S. is concerned China may be considering sending to Russia because, frankly, both sides really need the artillery. The third air defenses. There is a lot of concern that in the coming offensive by Russia, they will employ their air forces. The, the Ukrainians really need something that will defend on the ground from any onslaught from Russia in the skies. And that also includes things like drones and missiles that they could that that they could potentially use. Then the, the fourth one, as we've been talking about, armor. 
tanks. They're going to need more and more armored and tanks for this counteroffensive, particularly when Russia starts moving towards them. The Russians are very dug in their defensive lines, and the Ukrainians need the ability to break through those lines if and when this, this spring offensive really kicks into high gear, Kristen. Court, great reporting from the Pentagon there. Garrett, let me turn to you and get your perspective from Capitol Hill. There is a sense, based on conversations that I have had, that the U.S. is giving Ukraine enough to stay in this war, but not enough to win the war. Obviously, a myriad of different perspectives on Capitol Hill, but to the point that Courtney is making, I mean, what are you hearing about the level of support for sending F-16s, for ramping up the military aid the U.S. is giving even more? Well, this is where there's a really interesting division in the Republican Party in particular between Republicans who'd like to see the U.S. get out of the Ukraine, uh, sort of Ukraine backing business altogether. Some of the members on the far right, like your Marjorie Taylor Greens and your Matt Gaetzes. But then there's some of the more establishment Republicans, including uh, Michael McCall, the chairman of the uh, Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, to even some of the folks who are running for president, like Mike Pence, who've said that if we're going to be in this, we need to give Zelensky and the Ukrainians whatever tools they need up to and including the F-16s. Now, as Courtney laid out, there's some division within our own government, whether those are necessary or not. But this division within the Republican Party is interesting because if you want to look at it purely politically, there's two different ways to hit Joe Biden on Ukraine. You can hit him by saying he's gone too far or you can hit him by saying he's not gone far enough. House Republicans alone are doing both. Now, Democrats have largely kind of had Joe Biden's back on this to the degree there's division within that party. There tends to be a desire to see uh, more be given all at once rather than just give uh, the Ukrainians enough to sort of lose more slowly or stay in the fight longer. Now, whether any of this amounts to a significant push either from the right or the left to speed up the pace of weapons transfers, to speed up the pace of providing additional uh, tools and resources to the Ukrainians, I think remains to be seen. This is still Joe Biden's show. Uh, the question is like kind of how easily or di more difficult will it be to drag Congress along the next time the White House sends an aid request down here to Capitol Hill. Yeah, I think that is going to be the new front in this fight, Garrett. How long can the White House keep the support of Congress when it comes to asking for more aid packages? Aaron, let me go to you in Kiev. And Monica's reporting on the skepticism here uh, it, within the Biden administration about a potential meeting between Zelensky and President Xi about this proposed peace plan. What are you hearing there about whether Zelensky thinks this could be serious? I mean, is he going to this meeting thinking that this could yield some type of breakthrough? Well, Kristen, President Zelensky says he'd like to meet with President Xi, but there's no visit at present scheduled on the books for either leader that has been made public. And it is worth pointing out that tomorrow, the leader of Belarus, a close Putin ally, Alexander Lukashenko, is expected in Beijing. China is much closer to Russia than it is to Ukraine. Now, in terms of the peace plan itself, in that press conference last Friday, President Zelensky was marked reserved in his language about that, but his most senior advisors have not been. I have a tweet here from Mihailo Podolyak, a senior advisor, calling out China, essentially saying, quote, if you claim to be a global player, you don't offer an unrealistic plan. You don't bet on an aggressor who broke international law and will lose the war. It's not farsighted. As someone who plans for decades, doesn't play Russia three-day games, China, the window of opportunity is not endless. 
journalists, and certainly it's a representation of how other Ukrainians feel as well. Mm. Well, it's going to be fascinating. I think you hit the key point there. There's still no meeting scheduled. Aaron, let me follow up with you, though, because you've got some new reporting on explosions in Mariupol. What can you tell us? What are you learning? Yeah, that's right. The, the British Ministry of Defense tweeting about this this morning. In the last six days, there has been at least 14 explosions in the Russian-controlled port city of Mariupol. And that's significant because that is seen as a major base of operations for the Russians to the south. Now, I was speaking to a spokesperson for the Ukrainian uh, defense forces, and he was telling me that that is the result of intelligence on the ground, civilians, Ukrainians, informing a Ukrainian military in whatever way they can about positions of um, U- uh, Russian military bases, Russian fuel depots, uh, Russian warehouses, and then the Ukrainians taking drones and targeting uh, those that, that Russian infrastructure that's seen, according to this spokesperson, as uh, key to them being able to prevent a number of attacks over the anniversary of the invasion. And that's all significant because it was previously thought that Mariupol was about 10 kilometers outside of the reach of those U.S.-supplied HIMARS uh, that we talked so much about in the past. It was thought that this was sort of a safe haven for Russian forces from that kind of attack, but clearly no longer the case. And this uh, spokesperson for the Ukrainian Defense Ministry telling me that once they get those longer-range weapons that have been promised as part of a $2 billion package most recently announced by the United States, we'll know it. He's, he thinks that'll be a potential game-changer for them in, in, in their ability to be able to target some of these Russian-controlled areas, so-called safe havens that they've had before. Well, all of it just underscores that as we enter this second year, the war in Ukraine showing no signs of slowing down. Garrett, let me go back to you uh, because we are getting this new information from the Department of Energy that has now assessed they believe that the origins of COVID may have in fact been in a lab in Wuhan. And yet they say they've assessed that with low confidence. We know that the China Select Committee is meeting tomorrow night. Can you give us the reaction on Capitol Hill and, and what we anticipate coming out of that hearing tomorrow? Well, there's been some cheering from the far right about this assessment, although, as you point out, it is made with low confidence. It's not decisive by any measure. But, uh, you know, until recently, the idea that COVID might have escaped from a laboratory was treated as a conspiracy theory. And far right Republicans, largely the ones who were uh, most confident that that was the case, were routinely mocked for espousing it. But uh, one Republican who was kind of a critical voice on that was Tom Cotton, who tweeted about it. It doesn't matter. He says that he was right. Again, something that has not been determined. But what matters is that China is held accountable. Now, the chairman of that China Select Committee just spoke to reporters a short time ago, and he said that the origins of COVID is not necessarily something that his committee is going to spend a lot of time on. What we may see from that committee, and it won't be tomorrow night, which is going to be more of an opening argument for this China Competition Committee more broadly, but what we may see from that committee is a deeper dive on the idea of a cover-up, that whatever Mm. China knew about where COVID came from, why they made it so hard for the rest to the world to make these assessments and to study whether or not it developed naturally or from a lab. That's the kind of thing that that committee is particularly interested in digging into. And Kristen, it sounds like they're going to have a lot more uh, opportunity and interest from the wider country, I think, to explore that topic after this news over the weekend. I think you are absolutely right about that. Courtney, weigh in here. What are your sources at the Pentagon telling you about the broader implications of this finding by the DOE, again, which is assessed this with low confidence. And we should say that John Kirby uh, from the White House 
press briefing room from the podium there saying that there has been no final determination about the actual origins. Right. And remember, I, I think a lot of our viewers may not realize that a lot of assessments are a low confidence assessment because it, it, it's it, that, that's not uncommon here. But, you know, it, it's it's also not been a surprise that this is something that the, the U.S. government and others have been looking into this possibility of exactly how co whether covid may have come out of this lab. This is something that we were first reporting on um, almost three years ago now, Kristen, the potential that they were looking into this. Uh, now, I will say here, the out of the mm -hmm. Pentagon, we're not getting any comment. It's just mm -hmm. not really in their lane. But this also goes to the, the larger issue of these relations, this back and forth between the U.S. and China. It's, a, it's an extremely tense time. The fact that this is coming out now, none of this happens in a vacuum, Kristen. Monica, you've been working this story over the weekend. What are folks at the White House saying? I think something that we've heard over and over again from many in the administration and from U.S. officials who have been steeped in this now for years is that we may truly never know mm. the actual origins of this pandemic, that it will continue to be studied and investigated by all of these agencies, but you do see this major split between even the FBI, which has assessed apparently with moderate confidence this potential lab leak theory. You now have the Department of Energy with low confidence, but you have a bunch of other agencies that essentially are in a different corner saying this was more likely a natural transmission to humans. So this division could continue. It's something that President Biden has directed all of the agencies and the whole federal government to continue to look at. But the reality is there may not be a clear answer. Now, that doesn't take away any of the politics and the debate that will continue. But as for the actual scientific matter here, we may never get to the exact bottom of it. Now, three years into this mm. health crisis, Kristen. Great reporting all around. Monica, Courtney, Aaron, and Garrett, thank you all so much for that powerful start to the show. Still ahead, the presidential ambition of a former VP. We'll hear from Mike Pence, who had something to say about his former boss, Donald Trump, in an interview with our own Ali Vitale. Plus, the White House prepares for an abortion access ruling out of Texas that could have implications nationwide. We'll delve into this. You're watching Meet the Press now. Stay with us. Welcome back. Prospective 2024 Republican presidential candidates are starting to road test some potential campaign themes and attack lines as they gear up for what's expected to be a nasty battle with former President Trump for the Republican nomination in 2024. In an interview with my NBC News colleague Ali Vitale, former Vice President Mike Pence appears to have zeroed in on his pitch to Republicans, a return to the Trump era, but without Trump. Take a listen. As I've traveled around the country, I've heard two things. Number one, I've heard, I've heard countless Americans tell me that they want to get back to the policies of the Trump-Pence administration, policies that saw us make historic investments in our military, saw a peaceful and stable world, that, that saw our economy revive through tax cuts and unleashing American energy, saw conservatives on our courts and a secure southern border. But the next thing I hear, Allie, is that they want to see us and our politics return to the kind of civility and respect that Americans show one another every day. Now more than ever, we need the policies, but the civility that makes it possible for us to generate real solutions for the American people. 
Pence also broke with Republicans who are skeptical of ongoing assistance to Ukraine, saying there is no room in the party for Putin apologists. And this comes just a few days after Pence broke with other members of his party on the issue of entitlement reform. So a lot to unpack there. NBC's Ali Vitali is fresh off the campaign trail and that conversation with Mike Pence just a few days ago. She joins me now. So, Ali, first, congrats on a really great exclusive with the former vice president. He has not announced he's running yet. He sounds every bit like a candidate, though. What would his candidacy look like? What would his lane be in the 2024 primary? I think what we're starting to see from that interview is that it's Trumpism without Trump. Now, how successful that will be and how successful it is because the persona of Trump is what drives that movement, that remains to be seen. But look, Pence is in this really tough spot that he's not alone in. It's Nikki Haley who's in that position. It's Mike Pompeo if he runs. It's also, though, people like Ron DeSantis. Anyone who has ridden the Trump coattails or served in the administration is going to have to have a way where they can get around Trump, but defend the policies. You know, at another point in that interview with Pence, I asked him, innate in saying that he's going to run or thinking about a run, it means he thinks that he would be better or at least different. Could he detail one policy difference with Trump? And he didn't. Mm. Instead, he talked about leadership style, using those words that you just heard from him, respect, civility, a return to those morals. That's not the way that many people in the party would describe Trump. And in fact, you and I have met voters over the years who say, I love the policies, just not the way he says them. Pence is banking on the fact that there's a pretty substantial percentage of conservatives who feel that way. I'm not entirely sure they exist, but if you look at the polling that's out today, it's single digits and it's early and he's not an official candidate, but clearly he's seeing something that says, all right, I can give it a go. It's so fascinating because, of course, Nikki Haley so far has taken the same tact. She hasn't yes. really laid out where her differences would be from a policy <laughs> perspective with her former boss. Ali, let's talk a little bit about Ron DeSantis because you've got some new reporting there on his potential plans for 2024. What can you tell us? Yeah, out of the shadows, kind of, is where DeSantis is right now, because we're starting to see and hear more from him, but it's not an official announcement for president. He's trying to stay in the national conversation. He's got a book coming out tomorrow. We've seen him making stops in New York, in Philadelphia, in Chicago. And then he's also going to be continuing with some closed-door meetings that he's having across states like Texas and Alabama with Republican parties there. Then, of course, he's also doing this national book tour. And this weekend, he stoked a lot of consideration from donors who bet, who sat with him, about 150 of them, in Palm Beach as they listened to his blueprint for Florida, because that's what many advisors say, is that his focus is on the upcoming March legislative session because the way that they plan to run nationally is by pointing to what they've done in the Sunshine State. And so that means governing now in the short term and also pointing to the things that he's been able to do in turning the red meat for the base on education, on COVID, on all of these other quote unquote culture war topics into actual policy in the state of Florida. That's something that DeSantis has worked really hard to do at sometimes even running to the right of former President mm. Trump. And I think that's the way that he's going to make his delineation. For Haley, it's generational. For Pence, it's stylistic. For DeSantis, it could be just, I've actually done it all and put it into mm. policy.
Yeah, some Democrats say he's actually the biggest threat to President Biden yeah. if he does, in fact, announce he's running again. We're still waiting for that announcement as well. Ali Vitali, thank you so much for all Thanks. of your great reporting and your interview. Joining me now on set is Meredith McGraw, national political correspondent for Politico, Faz Shakur, senior advisor to Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, and Stephen Hayes, editor and CEO of The Dispatch, as well as an NBC News political analyst. Thank you all for joining me. Meredith, let me start with you. And... Pence running, as Ali just said, as Trump without Trump. Does that work? Is that, well, he hasn't announced yet. If he does, that's how he seems to be selling himself. Does that work? Well, for a lot of these Republicans who have already gotten in, people like Nikki Haley or who might be like Mike Pence, it's going to be hard for them to try to define themselves as somebody or is having different policies other than Trump. Nikki Haley worked under Trump. She was recruited by him to join the UN. Of course, like Pence was his vice president. We have seen some ways that they have differentiated themselves, one of them being Ukraine, the other um, entitlement reform, but really how they're able to try to you know, carve out their own path is something that will be interesting to see. Yeah, Stephen, I mean, in some contexts, the question becomes, does the Reagan-era Republican still exist? In some ways, you see former Vice President Pence trying to cast himself in that light, yes. in that image, Nikki Haley as well. Is this going to be sort of a battle between the traditional conservative Republican versus the progressive, or I shouldn't say progressive, the Trump and Ron DeSantis yeah. branch of the party, um, which is be. more populist, is yeah, the word I'm it, looking it, for. It Thank you. <laughs> it could be. I mean, look, I'm not sure we have any idea what Nikki Haley is running on at this point. I mean, she's basically spent yeah. a week and a half trying to not talk about policy issues and just um, make nice with, with Donald Trump. I mean, I think I actually would take sort of the, the premise of the question from, from Ali a little bit different, kind of flip it on its head. Mm. I'm struck by how aggressive Mike Pence has been on the policy questions. I don't think he's running on Trumpism without Trump. He's taking Donald Trump on entitlement reform and on foreign policy and national security. If, if we would have had a conversation in 2017, 2018, what are the ways in which Donald Trump is most broken with Republican orthodoxy over the past two decades? We would have probably pointed to size and scope of government, entitlement reform, mm -hmm. and foreign policy. Mike Pence is actually articulating but this in a way that makes him so different he does from it Donald in a, Trump. He does it in a low-key way, right, Stephen? I right. think one of the interesting things about his appeal to Republican voters, though, I think, is this question of civility. Do Republican voters want it? If you think about Trump and what he brought to the Republican Party was, I'm going to beat up on my own Vice President Pence. Mm. I'm going to beat up on Mitch McConnell. I'm going to beat up on the Club for Growth. Give me former Speaker Paul Ryan. I'll go at him, too. It didn't matter. And I think that th there's a sense of anger in my own sense, and I, you feel free to correct me, within the Republican voter ranks that is distrustful and angry at government. And, yeah. and who speaks to it? Well, it's that Donald Trump who's being so disruptive. And when you talk about Mike Pence or some of these others, you're trying to say, hey, there's a civility of how we all work together in this town. And I don't think it sells. He's, you know, I think he, it's a big bet. I think I do agree with your characterization of it. I mean, I think if you look at the way the Pence is, is, is making his, the early steps of his potential run, what he's saying is people are more sick of Donald Trump and the anger and, mm. the, and the craziness, right. frankly, mm. than they are enamored with the grievance politics that Republicans 
conditions of practice for the past seven, eight years. And that's a big bet. It's I, a big bet. I, do, I think this is a fascinating discussion, and I don't want to get off of the point of entitlements because I do think it's significant what you say. The fact that the former vice president seems to have a willingness and openness to saying, look, let's discuss entitlements. And yet for so many other politicians, Democrats and Republicans, they see that as the third rail. I mean, look at President Biden made that a, a fighting point in his State of the Union address. State of the Union address. And then, you know, former President uh, Donald, uh, former President Trump, he came out and said that entitlement reform right. is completely off the table and tried to really corner Republicans in that way who have who have challenged uh, going against it. Um, but you're right with with Mike Pence. That is something that he he has taken on. It's so interesting, Faz, because Senator Sanders says we need to address the issue of entitlements. We need to make them solvent. I mean, how do you see this playing out? Um, both in the primary for Republicans and in the general, because at some point it seems like this has to be addressed. Trump is crazy in many ways, but he's not dumb on this issue. Mm -hmm. um, he's he's got a sense of his own base. It's so you think it's risky for Pence? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I think Donald Trump led his own party to a position in 2016 that was contrary to many <laughs> decades of Republican thought, which was to say on both on trade deals and entitlement reform, I'm going to I'm going to be a different type of Republican. And to this day, I think if he's if he's casting himself still as an iconoclast within the Republican field on those issues, it's going to go well because I mean, he moved his own the yeah. own Republican base to where he is. Let's talk about another issue where Pence is drawing a line, and that is on Ukraine. I want to play a little bit of the sound and then get your reaction on the other side. It's the right yeah. approach to this moment in history with renewed Russian aggression in Eastern Europe is strength, American strength and calling on our allies to continue to meet their obligations for our common defense. So would you say Ron DeSantis' characterization is wrong? I would say anyone that thinks that Vladimir Putin will stop at Ukraine is wrong. So Meredith, there is Pence essentially responding to DeSantis and to Trump, who have questioned the amount of aid that the U.S. is giving to Ukraine. I mean, he is saying, no, we need to stand firmly against Putin and with Ukraine for these democratic values. Again, kind of the traditional Republican perspective when it comes to war. Yeah, what was so interesting about this speech by um, Mike Pence was it was reported that he arranged for this speech to happen after DeSantis made those mm. comments about Ukraine as a way to go after them directly and go after this wing of the Republican Party that has been growing in loudness, if you will, for questioning how much money should be going to Ukraine and how we should be thinking about um, giving help there. And while, according to polls, uh, there is support for Ukraine, um, Republicans have, we, we have seen that some Republicans uh, have shown shrink, shrinking um, support for how much money. And DeSantis said, across the board, no blank check. And that's something that we've seen from other Republicans as well. Stephen, this no blank check, does it neutralize what was once a, one of the strongest talking points for Republicans? I mean, I don't know. We're strong on defense? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, I think that's what Mike Pence is is, is playing to right there. He wants to be able to say, we're going to bet on American leadership, and, and, and that's what Republicans believe. I mean, Ron DeSantis, when Barack Obama was president, criticized Barack Obama on Ukraine from the other side, said he's not doing enough. Enough. This is not nearly robust enough. We have to have American leadership and was quite critical. Now he's criticizing Joe Biden, saying, in effect, we're doing too much. We shouldn't be doing as much as we are. I think, you know, Ron DeSantis is in the early stages of figuring out, or, I mean, laying out or maybe figuring out his foreign policy worldview. Um, something bears 
careful watching. In the it it sure does. Let's talk about the Democrats, Faz. Let me ask you about uh, this piece by Greg Craig in The New York Times that urges the Democratic Party to open up the VP race next year. Fascinating. Let me read you a piece of it. He writes, quote, without real campaign activity among Democrats in the lead up to the 2024 election, media coverage of Republican presidential politics will be intense with regular bashing of Mr. Biden and Ms. Harris, including attacks and conspiracy theories about the president's age and health, allowing Democratic voters to pick the vice presidential nominee might address the Democrats enthusiasm gap. If the status quo continues, no one on the Democratic side will excite or inspire a crowd. Giving Democratic voters a role in choosing the VP nominee would inject electricity and drama into an otherwise predictable, if not enervating process. What do you make of that? Are they all but calling for a primary of Biden without calling for a primary? Yeah, it's a version of that, right? <laughs> it cert certainly is. I, I think this would not be an issue had uh, Vice President Harris performed better in the 2020 primary. And mm. that's one of the things that's hurting her is that she dropped out early, didn't manage the campaign very well, didn't, people didn't have a lot of confidence in her. The other thing that's happening is that the Democratic field and voters are moving in a progressive direction. So you have both mm. of these things happening simultaneously in which people are wondering who's the most credible progressive who can win a general election. And I don't think she's made the sale yet to win the confidence of Democratic primary voters on that question, which is why you see this bubbling up in all these different facets and forms. Meredith, is there any universe in which this would ever happen based on your reporting? I mean, I don't know. In that same article, they said that's how they did it with FDR. Yeah. They, they picked it that way. So there's a historical precedence. Um, you know, the, the issue of age is going to be, uh, it's taboo, but it's going to be a huge one in the upcoming election. And Nikki Haley bringing up the, the yeah. competency test, um, I think it's this conversation's only just started. And even President Biden said it's fair game. Yep. So there you go. Thank you all for a great conversation. Meredith Faz and Stephen, really appreciate it. Next, new developments in the toxic train derailment in Ohio. Ohio as the EPA administrator gets ready to head back to East Palestine. You're watching Meet the Press now. Welcome back. We heard from officials in East Palestine, Ohio, earlier this hour as they held the first of what they say will now be daily press conferences on the status of the town and the environmental cleanup in the wake of the disastrous train derailment earlier this month. Federal officials said they would remain on the ground as long as is necessary to help the community. NBC's Ron Allen has the very latest on East Palestine, Ohio. Ron, thanks so much for joining me. So I guess first question, why are officials wanting to give these daily updates now. What has changed? Clearly, there is an urgency to get information out. Because they're facing so much skepticism and doubt in the community and so much mistrust. It's been over three weeks now. And you're right, there wasn't much news in this press conference. The news is that it is happening at all. Uh, they are trying to be as transparent as possible. And they've been saying essentially the same thing to residents. The air, the water, it's safe. The contaminated soil, it's being removed in as safe a way as possible. But there's still doubt. There's still people in that community, it, it's hard to quantify it, uh, who just don't believe that. I was there last week, mm. and there were still people who were in the evacuation zone who lived there who wouldn't come back home, who were still staying with relatives and friends. There was one family who uh, the EPA had done some testing in their home with the air, but they didn't believe it. And they were having their own testing. Uh, some of those residents, I can tell you, are also involved in the mounting number of, of lawsuits that are growing. There are uh, literally hundreds of residents 
suing in these class action lawsuits that are growing. There are lawyers in town who are doing information sessions, as they call them, uh, essentially trying to, to find more people to represent, and they have their own scientists. Uh, so that's what's developing there. Is on the one hand, you have the, the federal, state, uh, local officials telling residents one thing, and they just don't believe them. That's also why Michael Regan, the EPA administrator, is going back again for a third time. Uh, they're opening up a welcoming center somewhere in the main part of town on the main street where people can come in and get information, see test results, be, and all that. He's coming to, to see that and to kick that off as well as to tour the site. Um, but this is what they're trying to do, is win this community's trust. And so far, it's an uphill battle. Ron, very quickly, what is the status on the cleanup there? It seems like this is an ongoing and, and very long process. It is, and it's going to continue, and we, have, we don't have a time estimate on it. Uh, one development, they found more sites in Ohio to take hazardous material. Over the weekend, there were some uh, officials in uh, Michigan and Texas who were upset that some hazardous materials came there. Uh, now it's all going to stay in Ohio, um, and they say they've identified more sites, but they're still looking for sites, apparently, because they say it will take some of the hazardous waste. It's a huge job, mm -hmm. and it's going to take some time. Ron Allen, thank you so much. Really appreciate your reporting on this. Moving a bit north from Ohio to Michigan, where Democratic Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin announced her bid for U.S. Senate today. In a video announcing her candidacy, Slotkin highlighted her service in the CIA and bipartisan track record while calling for generational change. This is why I'm running for the United States Senate. We need a new generation of leaders that thinks differently, works harder, and never forgets that we are public servants. Slotkin will be running for the seat currently held by Democratic Senator Debbie Stabenow, who announced last month she would not seek re-election. Michigan is expected to be a key battleground for Democrats in 2024 as they look to maintain control of the Senate and the House. And one of the issues that could matter most in 2024 is abortion. We've got the latest on the case in Texas that could affect access for women all over the country. We'll be right back with more Meet the Press now. Stay with us. Welcome back. A federal judge in Texas could rule at any time now in a case that could have nationwide implications for abortion access. An anti-abortion group filed a lawsuit challenging the FDA approval of a drug used in medication abortions and has asked for a preliminary injunction to take the drug off the market while the case is decided. Currently, medication abortions account for more than half of all abortions in America. The White House has said the administration is preparing for a, quote, range of potential outcomes. The lead plaintiff, a group called the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine, has been accused of abortion rights advocates of choosing to file the suit in Texas in order to find a sympathetic judge, a claim the group denies. But abortion rights advocates point to the judge Matthew Kaczmarek's conservative credentials. A new reporting from The Washington Post dives into the Trump appointee's background including his anti-abortion beliefs. Joining me now is one of the authors of that profile, Caroline Kitchener. She covers the politics of abortion for The Washington Post. Caroline, thank you so much for being here. And your piece was so expansive and important and detailed. So thank you for your reporting. Talk to me a little bit about this judge. What did you learn about him and what are the key takeaways? So we interviewed 20 people who know 
Judge Kaczmarek, including close friends and family members. And what we uncovered is really a long history that goes back decades of deeply personal anti-abortion beliefs. Um, and these are not philosophical for Judge Kaczmarek. They are based on experiences that he has had in his own life with his family members um, that had never been reported before. And I think lend really important context to the ruling that, you know, we're, we're waiting for really at any day. And the, the first moment really came with his sister putting a child up for adoption. Yeah, his sister got pregnant at 17. Um, Judge Kaczmarek was raised in a very conservative Christian family um, by two born-again Christians in the Church of Christ. And he was raised from childhood to believe that abortion was wrong. So then his sister, she gets pregnant in high school and she goes to an anti-abortion maternity home about two hours from their house. And she chooses to put the baby up for adoption mm -hmm. over having an abortion. And he goes and spends time with her there. And the way that the sister described it to me was that that experience really solidified his longstanding anti-abortion beliefs. If this judge does rule in favor of the plaintiffs, essentially uh, taking this abortion pill off of the market for now, agreeing to this injunction, what happens next and what are the implications nationwide? Really, abortion clinics nationwide from you know, New York to California to Illinois, the most, you know, Democrat-led states in the country, it just goes into upheaval. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it, as you said, medication abortion right now accounts for more than 50% nationwide. So suddenly, you can't do that. Suddenly, you know, you, you have to either do a surgical abortion or you have to look at using another drug, uh, misoprostol, to do kind of a, a totally new procedure that nobody has done in many, many years since Mifepristone was uh, was approved in 2000. So it, it really would be um, catastrophic. That's the word that abortion rights advocates have been using. And I think it's important what you say. I mean, if this drug is taken off the market, then they, because it's used in conjunction with a second pill. So theoretically, the one pill could be used on its own, but not as effectively and with potential um, potential other side effects. Exactly. So around the world, misoprostol, the second pill, is used, um, but it is less effective. Mm. It causes more pain, more cramping and bleeding. Um, it just makes the whole thing a lot more difficult. And so, you know, it, it, and it would take a lot, I think, for clinics to get approval for that other way of doing things. And we just have about a minute left. What is your sense about where this goes? Does this go all the way to the Supreme Court. It really could. I mean, there's no way to predict what this judge is going to do. You know, we, we have documented his anti-abortion convictions, but you know, really, who knows? Um, but I think part of the reason that, anti that abortion rights advocates are so concerned is that it's not just this judge. After this judge, it goes to the Fifth Circuit, which is a very conservative mm. court of appeals, and then up to the Supreme Court, which obviously overturned Roe v. Wade in June. Caroline Kitchener, thank you for your remarkable reporting around this issue. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Coming up next, 75 years after the desegregation of the U.S. military, lawmakers grapple with how to right the wrongs of systemic racism suffered by black veterans. We'll delve into that. You're watching Meet the Press now. 
Welcome back. We're expecting President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris to deliver remarks in just a few minutes, kicking off a White House reception celebrating Black History Month as February comes to a close. Black History Month may have increased significance for some black veterans this year. 2023 marks the 75th anniversary of the desegregation in the U.S. military. But as NBC's Lucy Bustamante reports, racial disparities in the armed forces didn't stop with the end of segregation, especially when it came to veterans' benefits like education and housing. Here's some of Lucy's reporting on how those disparities affected black veterans and their descendants. Take a look. This is the love language of New Orleans, professed on this day for World War II veteran Lawrence Brooks. 112 years old, this is how the World War II Museum celebrated the nation's oldest surviving veteran, serving five years in the Army in the Pacific. Happy birthday, Mr. Brown! Oh, Lord, he loved the victory bells. He used to say... I can't wait to see them girls. <laughs> his daughter, Vanessa, his caretaker in his final years. How did it feel to see your father celebrated like that? It put a smile on his face, and that was mainly what it was all about. The status of oldest veteran earned him national attention. And on Veterans Day of 2021, a call from the president himself. Mr. Brooks. Yes, hello. Happy Veterans Day. I know. Well, thank you. I, that's why I called you. You deserve to be called on Veterans Day. Oh, thank you so much for calling. Two months after that call, Vanessa's father passed away. Oh, God, help me. <laughs> he was my hero. He loved everyone. And I am so proud to be his daughter. But of all the honors bestowed on her dad that day, there was one well-intentioned act from a local community college that Vanessa says broke her heart. An honorary degree for a man who never got the chance to go to college in the segregated South. He didn't achieve this. He always wanted to go to school. Okay. He never got the opportunity to go to school. The GI Bill of 1944 promised all veterans returning home from war an education along with housing and unemployment insurance, all meant to create a strong middle class in America. Historian Richard Rothstein. In practice, African Americans had very, very little opportunity to use the GI benefits uh, that uh, the GI Bill provided throughout the South. In the North, it was somewhat better. And Lucy Bustamante joins us now. Lucy, thank you so much thank for you. being here with this incredible and such an important story. And I just want to start off by making this point. Basically, mm -hmm. this veteran, this American hero who you highlighted, to whom you've introduced us, did not receive the benefits he That's was, exactly right. that he earned, that, that he, he deserved. Earned. And the ironic story about this, Kristen, is that he had been celebrated by the National World II Museum in New Orleans for nine years mm. with parades and birthday parties. And it wasn't until the family priest spoke to the daughter at one of these parties and says, Vanessa, does it occur to you to check with the VA to see if he's getting what he should be getting a month? And she said, you know, Father, I, I, don't, I don't really know. Let, let me check. And sure enough, he was only getting $91 a month. Mm. 
for years, for decades. It's heartbreaking. And um, that is different from the GI Bill. We're still trying to learn. Uh, the VA says that he never applied for education benefits, but like so many veterans of color, Kristen, they didn't know to, mm. or they tried, and their papers, anecdotally, we hear that they suddenly disappeared. Uh, Jim Crow laws in the South were very active still. It was segregated South. In the North, the numbers were a little bit better. Um, but, but these are the leftover situations of their children and grandchildren saying, I could have had a better life had my father, grandfather actually received what he should have deserved. And this was a widespread and, and is a widespread um, challenge and struggle. There's a Brandeis University study that delved into this that really exposed the inequalities yes. in terms of benefits, particularly for black veterans. What did it find? What are the takeaways? There are so many good statistics that they came up with, and they're having a hard time aggregating information because it goes back so many years. But the latest stunning statistic was that if you were to quantify in a dollar amount how much you owe the descendants of a World War II veteran who did not receive the GI Bill housing, unemployment insurance, and education benefits, you would have to pay $80,000 at least. So they're still trying to get those numbers. Um, it's an ongoing study. It's not fully published yet, but that's the interim report. And obviously, there's still a lot of discussion and action around this. What are lawmakers, what are veterans activists pushing for? What is the change that they want to see happen? So there was a uh, combat Marine veteran who is also a congressman, Seth Moulton, and he introduced in the last Congress the GI Bill Restoration Act. I know you know about it. Mm -hmm. It failed, even with Senator um, Congressman Clyburn also showing support. It failed. They said it was too expensive. So they want to try again through reintroducing that, and they would give the descendants of World War II veterans who did not receive education benefits and housing those loans, basically. Because that's so expensive, and Jim Clyburn knows it, he says, well, let's introduce now the VA Forever Housing Act into this new Congress. It's just the housing benefit, so no money, money up front, and it would go to any veteran regardless of race. And see what happens. Yeah, it's something that we will watch closely. Obviously, this is a divided Congress, so mm -hmm. like everything, I'm sure there will be a lot of debate around this. Right. Lucy, what is the VA saying? What are they doing in response to these revelations? The official statement, in particular, to a lawsuit that was filed by Yale Legal Services for Veterans, the Veterans Clinic, they said, we know that this is a mistake from the past. We know that this has happened. We're working very hard to rectify it. They said that they're doing certain um, outreach campaigns for veterans of color to make sure that they transition well. We asked them, what are you offering? Where are you offering? They told us 650 veterans from 2021 to 2023, veterans of color, but they didn't offer what services were offered to them. They just said, this group of people seems to be very happy with us, but we'll get you the, those numbers. Those numbers have been requested in so many different ways, and so many veteran organizations say they still haven't given it to us. Mm. So this lawsuit, Kristen, also shows the results of a FOIA a two-year FOIA by the Black Veterans Project that showed in the information that they put together a 29% disparity that veterans of color were getting denied 29% wow. more times than uh, veterans who are not of color for disability claims. Well, this is such an important story. It's such an important, really, investigative work by you, Lucy Bustamante of WCAU, you. our affiliate in Philadelphia, my old station. Yes. Uh, thank you for this incredible If I may forum. also say, Kristen, there were five other NBC stations that participated in the investigative work on this and just want to shout out to all of them, San Fran, Connecticut, um, you know, the Bay Area, uh, just a lot of the D.C. area. So many stations putting their heads together on this as well. Well, we thank all of you. Thank Extraordinary you. work. Thank you. Thank you.
And you can see more of Lucy's reporting on this tonight, on Now Tonight, at 8 p.m. Eastern, right here on NBC News Now. And I'll be back tomorrow with more Meet the Press Now. NBC News Now coverage continues with Hallie Jackson right now.